You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! So what was it like, you know, we were just talking over tea about of your influences what was it like sort of before rock and roll happened in England well you had um, of course looking musically you had uh, the music hall which Mm -hmm. was still very popular and uh, there you know People would come in. There was that lovely song they used to sing, "The worms come in and the worms go out. They come in thin and they go out stout." And that was about worms eating corpses. And and there were all kinds of dark songs that, and they people loved them, you know. And people would dress up uh, while they were performing those. And so uh, there was a whole uh, mythology in there that, that was ready to be drawn on for uh, popular music. And, and then there was the, uh, uh, you know, the Cockney music and the, um, put your left foot in, put your right foot out. You do the hokey cokey and you shake it all about. And uh, there was that whole ethos there that, say, Ian Dury later drew on. And at, at that time also, uh, Anthony Newley was singing and performing. And uh, he had a, a great influence on David Bowie, even jumping, you know, a whole, uh, whole steps of the yeah the progress of rock and roll but we went back and and uh newly had a, a great effect on on everybody with with his um lyrics and, and his way of singing and his it was kind of theatrical um and so there was a, an awareness of variety shows and drag things. So costumes, theatre were present. And then, you know, if you look at uh, the predecessors of the um, Monty Python, it was uh, The Goon Show with Spike Milligan in it. And they they, uh, did all kinds of strange, trippy, uh, theatrical pieces and also Harry Seacombe had his own show and he um, 
was a fantastic opera singer. He was offered a career in real opera at Covent Garden and he turned it down because he wanted to be funny. But he had his own program and he'd sing opera songs and Welsh songs. So the, it was a mixture of uh, all kinds of things and it, it was kind of waiting for a different rhythmic bass, if you like. And um, then Radio Luxembourg was the, the one that I used to listen to. And then and all the American music started coming in. I remember when I was about uh, probably 12 or 14, which would make it 1954 or 56. And at that time, my father was being, after being a navigator, there was not a lot of work after the war in certain ways. So he became a salesman for an English petrol company, um, Regent Petrol, I think it was. And then it was taken over by an American, uh, big American concern. And, and he just, he came in one day and said to me, hmm, you realize that all our English values and ways of looking at things, now they're gonna be pushed into the background and we're going to see a different world. And so the, there was some resistance to the American music, but it was inevitable that it was going to come through. So you had, um, you know, uh, dance programs um, and variety shows on the radio. Henry Hall's music, Henry Hall's Bath Night, where he would listen to his, and then he had a, an orchestra. And we had Ted Heath, who was not the Prime Minister, but another one, who had his own um, big, big band playing all the, you know, Duke Ellington stuff and everything. And he was uh, really successful. I think he was the only English band, I can't remember in time, but I think he was the only English band of that size to be successful in America as well. And so, 50, so 54, 56 is when you first start discovering the blues? Uh, not, well, not so much the blues. It was Elvis and mm -hmm. uh, Carl Perkins and Little Richard. Mm -hmm. And all the rock stuff, right? Because that's 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 what was <coughs> popular. Yeah, and I don't think Radio Luxembourg was yet over here doing that. And <coughs> it was probably in that period that um, Alan Lomax and mm -hmm. uh, Shirley Collins went out into the fields and discovered a lot of the old blues music um, and then brought them over to a couple of festivals here mm -hmm. and then it became yeah to, uh, Harold Pendleton 
put together the uh, the Marquee Club, where yeah, the, a lot of the old blues artists would play. Uh, Sonny Boy Williamson and yeah. uh, and also yeah, a little later they did all the university and uh, big uh, say like in, in Reading the Olympia Music Hall they, they used to come and play there and uh, Memphis Slim he was at that time he was a little too sophisticated for basic blues lovers so uh, when I went to that one I went to his concert in, in Reading and by that time I was 20 and he um, came out on stage there was just me and two other people big hall takes sure. 2,000 people so there were three of us and so he came out and looked oh, and he said and then he saw us and he looked at it and he said well fellas never mind best party I ever had there was only two of us <laughs> and he played his whole set he said come up on the stage boys instead of going like well look so he played it we got to the that's amazing yeah because he was just on a different level ah he was and, and I don't you know I don't know anything about his life but he was certainly a, a charming and kind person in that yeah. situation and and then uh, oh th then um Around about that time, or maybe just a little fraction later, um, yeah, because that I was oh yeah by that time I was twenty three, um, <coughs> but Sonny Boy was uh, came over and did a residence at the Marquee. Yeah, and he did a record with the Yardbirds, right? Yeah. And, uh, but uh, the guy who had just recorded the Moody Blues, mm -hmm. Go Now, um, was a guy called Phil Woods, and he was, or Philip Wood, I can't remember which it is, uh, he was a, a bald-headed guy who was having some trouble with the tax man. And, uh, but he was he was the the engineer for the Marquee Studios, and he uh, was given the the job of uh, looking after uh, Sonny Boy's needs. And his needs was he he wanted his hoe, and he wanted a, a quart of whiskey every day. So that you know yeah. So he every day he had to go to the, the hotel room, which Sonny Boy had on the train. And so he'd knock on the door, 
older than when the term hamlet come out <laughs> and uh, sonny boy would take the, the whiskey in and then uh, so one day it was you know he'd been doing it for about 10 days came on and he could smell smoke and then he realized it was coming from under the door so he So he managed to burst open the door, ran into the, the room straight opposite was the, the thing, the lounge or something. So he ran into about three rooms, bedrooms, and, and uh, nobody. And then he realized, oh, it's coming from under the bathroom door. <laughs> and he thought, well, that's you know, brains yeah. and Sonny Boy's getting burned. And he went in and, and Sonny Boy had got fed up of English cooking. So he was actually cooking a chicken in the bath. It was in a metal bath in those days. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, you know, when some people, now they're vegetarians and they'll take their own, well, say like, five or ten years ago they take their own food so he wanted some of his food how he, how he liked to have it made and there wasn't anything in the way of those uh, yeah. places then we we had uh, hamburgers then that were called wimpy wimpy burgers and they were about that thick and they, they had nothing resembling real beef in there so he wanted a real, a real cook-up chicken with, uh, you know, all his, probably made his own sauces. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that was, um, that was the, in, in that club, Chris Barber was a, a lot involved with that and he had one of the best trad bands and, and some hits and uh, uh, in fact it was with one of the trad bands I did my first solo public performance in that Reading Olympia Hall which on that occasion was full and it was uh, one of the trad bands called Echo Bilk and he, he just said I said well could I ever sing? He said, well, you do. I said, well, I'm, I've got my own band here. And, uh, it's quite popular locally. I said, hmm. All right, Popnose, get up on that stage. And so I did uh, Basin Street Blues. And so Classic. there was, uh, oh no, St. Louis Blues. Yeah. And so there was this mixture uh, prior to rock and roll really you know prior to the form of rock and roll that the stones brought in the yardbirds that was like to my mind they were the beginning of prog rock in its real way uh, and they were managed by Giorgio Gomelsky yeah who was like an ex 
from uh, Czechoslovakia in those days. And he was uh, an amazing man. Also did uh, Brian Olger and Julie Driscoll. And so you, you had all this uh, overlapping of musics. Yeah. And you had, um, you know, the early uh, jazz festivals with the, the, the conflict of modern jazz and and they'd be like booing all the trad jazz would be booing all of yeah. the modern jazz on stage and there were you know the, the Bureau festivals so it, it was that kind of mixture blues became very popular Alexis Corner was the the one that had um, I think the the Stones opened for Alexis Corner and he had a lot of the uh, people who became famous later were came through Alexis's band and um, he was quite a character and then John Mayall Alexis was sort of to do with the, the early festivals and stuff mm. and John Mayall I think at that point was living up a tree and uh, sure. he had that rough edge to it that, that earthy feel with Clapton with long sideburns and the first solo ever I heard and I think anybody else where he just did one long feedback note yeah and everybody went what is that um, yeah so you had this sort of early mixture of musical and classical was very yeah prominent so it had its influence. Um, yeah, and then there was the, the memory of all the, the old gospel songs. Yeah. And so for, in 19, Had that series, The Prisoner. Yes, I yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a number. I'm a free man. Yeah, and and you, if you've seen, you might remember one of the later episodes. He finally gets into the control room. Yeah. There's a he's there his own face, tears the face off. There's a, a monkey's face tears the or an ape's face tears the ape's face, and his own face is back there again. And uh, he he ends up on this very strange with this very strange group of people, and um, there's a very very surreal number in there where this guy sings dim boom dim boom dim dry boom yeah. dim boom dim boom, but he does it in such a way that it pre 
you, you look at punk, there it is, right there. Right. Later, they did punk. But it was amazing. So you had all of these, vis vis you know, visions of different styles of music hanging around. And due to, I think, say like UFO and then the festivals, it became coalesced into mm, sometimes different local scenes, but it was all part of one big scene. I don't know whether that has anything to do with your question. I think it does. I mean, well, because I think it's, I always think about how crazy it is that the Rolling Stones' first tour was opening for Bo Diddley. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And I also, well, well, that's another story, which I think is written down somewhere, which was the Animals and, and John Lee Hooker. Yeah. And he was playing in a different uh, location on that night in the same town. And so somebody, I think, introduced them. And uh, they said, well, John, because they loved his music, obviously. We're playing down the road tonight. So, so why don't you come? So, huh. and he went down, and they said, "What do you think after the gig?" And he said, "Biggest load of rubbish I've heard in my life." <laughs> <laughs> but of course, later he got involved with all of them, being one of the founders. Of it. So, two questions. So one. So like you first meet Keith Richards in like what, nineteen sixty three? Keith Richards? Yeah. <laughs> when did I meet him? Yeah. Oh, did you not? Oh, for some reason I thought, okay. Uh, uh, what I remember is we played in the speakeasy. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there was Jagger and Keith Richards. And that was before anybody knew about us at all. We were doing the, the act, but, but it was not, uh, I think we'd got five gigs in a year because the, the, the act was too strange for most people and the lyrics weren't, you know, what people were singing about. And so they just, I remember we did um, Devil's Grip and I, I came on I'd made a newspaper witch doctor character, and it was really fantastic. You know. Okay. And uh, and I had all the you know makeup on and everything. And, uh, and what I think Brian James was still. Okay. Well, he must have been because he if he didn't die till seventy, I don't think. That's right. And it was. Uh, I don't remember which one of them said, well, what was that? You know, because it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and so, no, I, I didn't. Um, okay. So, well, I, I, so I, I guess my question is more, you knew quite a few of these people pre-fame, right? Like you knew 
yeah, we knew a lot of these people pre-fame. What was it? And then you kind of came, like, I feel like you have sort of like Beatles, Stones, The Who, who really blow up in like 65, and you were making music at that point, but you, you know, your record doesn't come out till 68. Yeah. But what was it like to have all these people you had known and had been playing club shows with suddenly become international pop stars? <laughs> well, I, well, the, the truth is I didn't really know them. Okay. Uh, I, I, I guess you met the Who later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of went to see them playing in uh, France in 65. Yeah. And... Um, they were, yeah, so, and uh, so I'd, I'd, I knew, I'd, I'd met um, Paul Samuel Smith uh, when I was at Reading, and did, did a, he produced a record um, that I did for the rank mm-hmm. with the local band called the the black diamonds we had the very early keyboard so I kind of met him and uh, but but really Yeah, really, it was such a, a mixture because I, I was, well, you know, before I became, oh, you know, famous, I, I was at Reading University. I had a uh, modern jazz quartet. Mm-hmm. I was playing bass and singing and used to Charlie Mingus and uh, oh, okay. all of those kinds of things. Are there any recordings of that? Uh, no. <laughs> there were, we, no, we did, you know, those days you didn't, if, if you wanted to record, you went to a studio. In those days, you didn't have a studio. It was like a, it was the university jazz club. And and the, um, the, the guy in the year before me, so he, their band was, you know, the, mm-hmm. the top band, and mine was coming up. Was um, uh, a drummer called John Marshall. He was studying psychology then, and uh, he later played with uh, Soft Machine and all kinds yeah. of people, and played on the Fire album. Yeah. Uh, so it that was a mixture. That whole thing. Uh, um, for instance, for me, I had my my band we were playing uh, that modern jazz. I was in a little duet with a guy who, Ron, Laurie Johnson, mm-hmm. who played blues guitar and folk guitar. So we sang just the du- duet, acoustic, folk and blues. Also, I was in a trad band playing trad music around. 
So there were all these little little scenes, and there was on the side of them was the the pop stuff with the stones left the yeah. the club scene, if you like, and went into the. And so I was behind that, uh, still doing the university stuff, uh, you know, and, and the yeah. university circuit. And so um, it, it was a time when, for instance, where I was in the residential hall for, for one year, a, a quadrangle, big quadrangle, and then the, the rooms on either side. Out of the windows, those <coughs> opposite was classical music. Downstairs to me was the blues. No, uh, was uh, Bob Dylan. Upstairs was the blues. Over there, <coughs> over there was <coughs> folk music. And so you, you just walk out. You didn't know what you were going to get, and all of it became a blending of that. And that was what led to the UFO Club. Yeah. And. But you're, you're 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 looking at the be you're looking at the beginning of it, aren't you? Where um, pop music, Patsy Cline, and all of that stuff suddenly took on the the more like African rhythms of blues, and we because. Of because the the English scene with Alexis Corner and and other people was responsible, uh, partly responsible, and was uh, allied with Alan Lomax and all those people who discovered them, yeah. made them popular, and then they went back to America and played to the big audiences again. Yeah. Well, it's cool because it's like, to me, that whole Delta Blues thing is something I will only ever experience like third hand, you know? So it's cool that you got to be there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was... I was always curious about this. Was Robert Johnson held in the same reverence then as he was now? And when was the first time you heard him? He was, uh, yeah, he was, but it was uh, for the people who were blues aficionados. Sure. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody I, I knew. And I think they've now got it. But he had come across this. Um, it was a piece of film that was a just showing the neighbourhoods of different towns. And so they'd 
you know, going up and down streets, haberdashers and all of that. And uh, as you go past, suddenly there's this 30 seconds of this booze. And when they finally uh, focused on it, it was, it was him. And uh, that's the first, I think, and only film they, yeah. they had. Um, yeah, what, what was sort of germane to that was that uh, Alexis Corner put out a series on the radio, and this was very early on, called The Kings of the Blues. And he drew blues from all the different traditions, you know, the Delta blues, the city blues, yeah. um, Lightning Hopkins, Sleepy John Estes, Barry Lewis, all these old all names. guys, yeah. Yeah. And they then became, that was what really pushed the, uh, the possibility for people like uh, Clapton. Rolling Stones, which is the audience went, ah, yeah, different rhythm. It it was kind of magical because there was they were so direct. They were direct mm-hmm. with relationships, with sex, with whatever else. You know the lyrics. Yeah. And and the the um, the rhythms. <coughs> One of the early ones, perhaps of all, no, it was early. Howling Wolf was the one, and you can take his. Famous, uh, it's a green, greenish cover album where he has uh, smokestack lightning and all of those. And um, I, I checked <coughs> it out later, and you can actually take the rhythm of his rock and roll music or his blues music, and you can actually locate the tribe where it was that was their traditional music different ones he did different he didn't just like oh, yeah. my tribe and so he was like a compendium of early music and I remember um, he w- he opened for Frank Zappa and I remember Zappa got to the mic and he said this is a travesty we should be opening for him. Um, Well, didn't that happen with the Rolling Stones and Muddy Waters? Quite probably, Like, I think they found out Muddy Waters was the opening act, and they were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) We're opening now. (laughs) It's just like... (laughs) I mean, you know, that's the correct thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, to that extent, 
Jerry Lee and Little Richard are, in my mind, in the same category. Yeah. But they, they, their sort of style went, went under for a while. And so when they came back, they were always on a bills with yeah. those people. So they, they still remained huge, but they, it wasn't, except when they went to festivals. That was great. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it, it was really quite fascinating because that, that early blues stuff as well <coughs> was sonically very uh, adventurous. Yeah, well, like, even, like, if you go, like, pre-WC Handy to, like, Henry Miller and, like, those guys, and it's like, what in the fuck? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't know Henry Miller. Oh, well, I'll film with you after. Ooh. I'll look him up. Yeah, a lot of jam. What was his... That fuck, I think his name was Henry Miller. Let me pull it up. Um... Because, like, W.C. Handy is, like, the first guy to, like... Charlie Patton. Yeah. Right? But then there was this other guy who was, like, pre-Charlie Patton or something. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yeah, so you have Charlie Patton, and then you have... Henry Sloan. I'm sorry. Ah. And this is like, we don't really know about him, but he turns it, he teaches Charlie Patton. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I don't know. But no, but, but yeah, but you're right that, you know, Mississippi Shakes is another band where you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And where, where were they playing in that time? You know, it's like the early barrel house blues bands and uh, with the you know still playing with trumpets and yeah uh, where did these other people play they started there and then then moved into kind of touring yeah yeah it's weird to think about um so, at what point this is going to be a hard question you're a very humble guy and this is going to be a hard question to answer humbly but at what point did you start to sense your influence upon others feel like it must have happened relatively early on um well I remember when we you know because the first uh, record that track put out was the nightmare track yeah and that that was in the charts but uh, it went out quickly due to the shortage of vinyl so 
and um, by that time uh, Lambert it, it was a paradoxical situation because uh, as I said before when I first started with, with the crazy world um, we got five gigs in a year and so we're obviously not influencing and so it was it was difficult to get gigs with our stuff and it's like oh still want to do it because it's such fun um and at that point you know lambert particularly wanted me to be a lounge singer mm -hmm. so there was all of this going on and then um Lambert was came down and saw us and, and was looking at okay and so he, he I remember him saying to me he said you realize that we, we've got to get this out because other bands are going to copy you because we were going around by that but that early time we were doing more gigs and so we we would appear at clubs and you know and it was something different uh, it wasn't there wasn't an underground circuit at that point and so the idea of uh, singing about you know demons and all of that stuff and making it current rock and roll with a, with blues and R&B and rock rhythms was like ah oh. and so <coughs> A year later, uh, I think it was a year, Black Widow, Black Sabbath, all of those yeah. started to appear. So we thought, oh, so, so Lambert was right. Because we thought nobody was going to copy that. You know, it's <laughs> like, why would you copy it? It's so too difficult to get gigs. But <clears throat> they obviously liked it. And... Um, so that was a, a sort of thing, but it didn't, at that time there wasn't a, a metal scene or this yeah, of thing. course. So you didn't think, oh yeah, we're going to have influenced a whole pedigree. It was just like, oh yeah, well, some people thought it was great, so cool. <laughs> and like we thought that, um, you know, tried jazz was great and blues was great, yeah. Sure. But you you then get the idea actually from people like uh, the Beatles and the Who. Well, it's like, well, let's you know we write all our own stuff and then do a couple of things that people like so that they don't feel totally lost. You know, um, so but then. I, I, you know, I went off to live in America. I stopped touring. That, this was after Fire, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is just one example of it. And um, I, it, it must have been ninety, nineteen ninety, and. Uh, Obviously, that's after all the Kingdom Come stuff. 
we did a gig a gig in Chiswick Town Hall and little did we know that around the corner somebody rather famous was living and so after the gig we went I, everybody was packing the gear away and the, le the cleaner lady came and she started coming out and she said there's somebody in the next room wants to talk to you and I said oh you know I'm trying to get hold of my Oh, really? Who, who's that? And she said, oh, Bruce Dickinson. And, and uh, at that time, I knew the name Iron Maiden, but I didn't know Bruce or his okay. name. Okay. So I just said, oh, yeah? Oh, well, you know, I might pop in. She said, you don't know who he really is, do you? <laughs> I said, no. And she said, it's Iron Maiden. And I said, oh, Iron Maiden. One of those heavy metal bands. <laughs> so... Um, I went in there and, and Bruce said uh, first thing he said to me he looked, looked to me in the eye and he said you'll never know how many millions I've made off what we've got from you and and he used to love Kingdom Come he used to come and yeah. sit there and watch them play and that was like wow because Kingdom Come was a you know, a very experimental band mm -hmm. and everything, but it, it didn't have any uh, big commercial success. So the idea that, you know, Bruce was, uh, that, it, it, that it, it influenced him didn't even occur to me, because he never came up during that time. He wasn't, I think, at that point there. They would have been very young. Yeah. And so there, there were things like that that, that, that happened and you'd suddenly realize oh and then you, you know you, you'd kind of play a bill on a festival and somebody from oh like Susie and the Banshees or one of those bands would say oh yeah we, we you know really loved listening to your stuff and then uh, so it was like that really and then you'd get sort of, I remember a guy in Austin writing this summation of what he could see of my career and I thought, they sound good, they did this, they did that. Oh, <laughs> you know, oh, fantastic. But there were, there were other things like, you know, from fire, uh, I realized how far it had reached. You know, when I um, when I met uh, Stevie Wonder, and he said, "Oh, oh yeah, I'll, I'll produce your next album," and then it got all uh, you know, managerial. Yeah, uh, and I, I thought, oh, yeah, those people. They were listening. They listened to that, and uh, and and then you realise it's just part of the whole thing because everybody's influencing everybody else. You know what I mean? It's like if you look at the the UFO club, there was Pink Floyd, Soft Machine, Mark Bowen, Bowie coming in occasionally, 
all these people who later became uh, enormous <coughs> were in there and you watch everybody and the audience are loving it all so you don't get to have oh yeah this is the night they come to see this style not not like that at all and so you just I don't know I just became aware everybody was influencing everybody else and you, you couldn't really say out of those bands that any of them were purely they were the ones who did this sure and and you know you, you had uh, Keith Emerson in there with the nice and uh, and and uh, Tom Jones came down uh, the opera people came down um, Margot Fontaine came down you know it, it was just a, a pop and so we, we we then, when that became a scene, we realised, yeah, you know, we, we were part of it and we had influenced, uh, just as we were influenced by the the original um, San Francisco scene and the blues route that, where that came from. So. And, th and then. You know, I, I remember loving, uh, and um, our friends electric, and those, those uh, electronic records that came out, and um, just thinking oh well they, they were in must have been in the air and then when this guy did the that article in Austin pointed out that those a lot of the electronic scene came from the, the third year of June because it was a gap of about five years before uh, Mr. Newman came out and yeah, well, there was also, I worked on this record a few years ago, trying to find it, that I feel like you would have some sort of connection to. But yeah, well, we were talking about this last night, that there was John Mills Cockle. What one? John Mills Cockle. No. He, he was like one of the first people to have access to like a Moog, basically. Oh. And he was like one of the, like he was, he was like a professor of electronic music or something. So he was just in 1966, just one of eight people who had access to those sorts of things and was just doing it. Yeah. You know? So I was just, yeah. But it's just, it's so interesting, I think, that like that period of music from like, 65 to 73 oh. and how quickly things evolved and took left turns and new instruments were just brought in because it was like oh hey we can do this with electronics now 
Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you, you could, uh, you know, have a, a thing that perhaps attached a, 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 a perhaps reached a, a parallel place to like a big string set. Yeah. With just not the mellotron and all that, but just a few sounds from the synth. Yeah. You could hear this, and you could have the way the the note when it's not plucked, like with a guitar. Yeah. It would have the same way it entered the ear. Yeah. Yeah, and and there was uh, from that point of view, Doctor Who and Wendy Carlos and Walter Carlos at that time, um, who and and also switched on Bach and all of that stuff that just uh, transformed uh, what people could see was possible and I think it, in a way it was part of the rebirth of classical music uh, in one of its furthest reaches yeah that, that there was it was a time of rebirth of all kinds of things, because that the the, the modes were able to answer the, the desire in the audience for new experiences, and, and you know a new experience with blues and everything, and the rhythms of that. But then with technology, what what was uh, possible? And what I, we had the first. Uh, sampler that you could play on stage and it was made by Wayne mm -hmm. and, and it had uh, these buttons on it and you could play a police siren or, uh, yeah <laughs> and so all of those things started to come out and of course the technology that Hendrix later used was, was just coming out and making all sorts of things possible for the poor everyone and uh, <coughs> whoever cared to use it. Yeah. Well, let's uh, call it there. Yeah. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.